the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. 
Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has the li its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their, fathers, their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Heavenly Father, um, Please may your spirit help us this morning to understand your word. Open our eyes to the truths that are in it, uh, truths which we are familiar with in all likelihood, but we pray that we would see in a clearer way uh, these truths as they are and what they mean for us in our present day life, we ask. And we pray this to your glory. Amen. Uh, shortly after the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, uh, there was an article in the Times which opened with the following paragraph, and I've got it on the screen. A Presbyterian mini church minister caused anger yesterday after he compared the Asian tsunami to Noah's flood and claimed it was an act of God to punish, and I use the Scottish accent, pleasure seekers who broke the Sabbath. Uh, the Reverend, Reverend John McLeod, 74, a senior minister, in the fundamentalist Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, said that the disaster, which claimed 20, 226,000 lives in 13 countries on Boxing Day, was a divine visitation that ought to make men tremble the world over. Well, such a statement raises many questions. Uh, how does God work in the world? Are natural disasters an act of God? Are the victims being punished by God for particular sins they have committed? Now, if we were to assess the Reverend MacLeod's statement with what the Bible says, uh, would he be on firm ground or not? Uh, the matter of suffering, uh, natural disasters, and how God works in the world is complex. 
uh, there are many factors to consider in response. I can only mention a couple here. The fact is that part of what the Reverend MacLeod said is biblical, and part isn't. Uh, Firstly, uh, where would the Bible disagree with the Reverend MacLeod? Well, he said the 2004 tsunami was an act of God to punish, and I quote, pleasure seekers who broke the Sabbath. Uh, Were the people who died in that disaster more wicked than the others? Uh, Jesus himself was confronted with this idea by the people of his day, and yet Jesus refused to agree that only the wicked suffer. At Luke 13, verse 4, he says, All those 18 who died when the tower in Shalom fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So, no, God did not gather more wicked people around the Indian Ocean to destroy them with a wave. Unless we repent, we will all eventually suffer the same fate, perishing under God's judgment. But part of what Reverend MacLeod said was also in agreement with the Bible's take on the world. We can't just say that tsunami was the unfortunate result of powerful natural forces that operate independent of any divine decree. We can't say that. The Bible is clear. God governs all the details of our world and our universe. God's appointed king is his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Jesus directs the course of history in this world, including its natural disasters. As the insurance companies tell us, natural disasters are acts of God. And the Bible says that the disorder of the world, it's from God's hand. Uh, This was not the way it was supposed to be in the beginning, and yet God has decreed that that is the way it is now because of humanity's rebellion against him. Uh, Romans 8 verse 20 says this, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That is God. So, uh, in our Bible overview, uh, we come now to one of the greatest natural disasters recorded in biblical history, the flood. And we're going to see that it has much to teach us about the link between sin and judgment, but also grace and rescue. Uh, But but before we look more closely at this dramatic and horrifying event, uh, let me briefly summarize what has happened in the intervening chapters since Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at last week. So, uh, with the rebellion of Adam and Eve, uh, the virus of sin is released into the creation. Uh, There is an all-pervasive radiation of sin. It now infects every heart, and it taints every action. Uh, The chapters that immediately follow the fall in Genesis 3 charts the downward spiral of human society. Uh, Genesis 4, uh, chapter 4, introduces two infamous characters, uh, Cain and Lamech. They are the first murderers recorded in the Bible. Uh, Chapter 5 contains 
a ten-generation genealogy that stretches all the way from Adam to Noah. And yet the repeated refrain is this, and he died. You see, God's word and God's warning to Adam and Eve has come true. That the wages of sin is indeed death, and now all do die because death is universal. And by the time we reach Noah's generation, the degeneration is picking up pace. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And so the scene is set for one of the greatest acts of divine judgment in biblical history. Now, just to give you a brief roadmap as to where we're going this morning, the account of the flood is going to help us more clearly see the following. Firstly, sin leads to judgment. Secondly, grace leads to rescue. But thirdly, the problem remains. So, sin leads to judgment. In Genesis chapters 1 to 3, we learn, if you recall, that sin is relational. Uh, sin is rebelling against God's rightful rule over us. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 now confirms that diagnosis, but from a slightly different angle. It tells us that sin is an attitude of the heart before it is ever an action of the will. You see, the heart of sin is in the heart. Uh, it says again, uh, verse 5, sin, uh, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And now, if you were with us during our Roman series last year, we talked, if you recall, about the doctrine of total depravity. If you remember, it's not saying that there is no good left in us. We are made in God's image, and we've been looking at that in the kids' talks, and we still retain aspects of that goodness. What total depravity means is that there is no aspect of our lives which is not in some way affected and spoilt by sin. Uh, sin infects our thoughts, which in turn corrupt our words and our deeds. So you see, in that sense, we are totally depraved. So firstly, we've seen uh, sin is thought before it's a deed, it's something in the heart. Secondly, we see sin grieves God. Because Genesis chapter 6 deepens our understanding of sin yet further. Not only does sin start in our heart, but it smarts in God's heart. He is grieved by it. Chapter 6, verse 6 again. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. You see, sin is a personal insult. It is an affront to God. And it brings God pain to see His beloved creation in such a state of disarray. And God is not indifferent to the plight of the world. Uh, thirdly, we see that sin stirs God to judgment. As we saw in Genesis chapter 3, there, there is this unalterable formula rooted in God's righteous character. It, if you like, it's a maths equation that always applies whether it be sooner or later. The equation is this, sin plus God equals judgment. Sin plus God equals 
judgment. And we see it operating in here in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and the birds of the air. So you see, the punishment of Genesis chapter 3 is not the end of the story. Humans continue to sin, and therefore God continues to judge. And this time it will be the mother of all judgments, a global devastation by flood. Uh, Now, Noah and the flood are popular lessons for kids' church, uh, plenty of opportunities for arts and crafts, and plenty of good visual aids. But when you think about it, the story should be banned from every kids' church because really it should have an R rating. The story of the flood is absolutely horrific. Men, women, children, all swept away to their death. Uh, We tend to overlook the cataclysmic horror of the flood, and yet the horror should not be lost on us, and it's definitely not lost on God. His heart is grieved. It would be a mistake to think that God sent his judgment with any sense of glee. God is grieved by the ruinous effect of sin on his creation, and he gets no enjoyment whatsoever from dispensing his judgment. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. He says this. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. So, there is no joy in God's heart as he decrees vast bodies of water to create chaos and destruction. In creation, God gathered the waters under the heavens together in one place. In the creation account, God established boundaries between the sea and the dry land. He made life, land-based life possible. But now God does the opposite. Now God removes that boundary between land and sea. The seas invade the land. The order of creation is replaced by chaos. And the basis for life is withdrawn. And death comes to every land-based life form. Here again, uh, the effects of God's judgment are not just limited to human perpetrators. Uh, The whole of the creation is affected. Uh, Men, animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, although it seems that the fish get off rather lightly. They're going to have a whale of a time. Forgive me for the witless pun. So, we've thought about uh, sin leading to judgment, but secondly, let's think about grace leading to rescue. Because not only does sin stir God's heart to judgment, but also to grace. His grace moves his heart to rescue. You see, the flood is not only one of God's greatest judgments, but also one of God's greatest rescues. And this is important because if God is to fulfill his plan to fix the fall he's going to need to mount a rescue operation for his people. And God's rescue of Noah is the first indication given as to what this rescue will involve. 
and we're going to see in particular four truths of salvation in the account of Noah. So the first truth we see is salvation is from God's judgment on sin. Remember the unchanging formula? Sin plus God equals judgment. Now, Noah, we're told, was a good man, uh, but he wasn't a perfect man. Uh, Noah still sinned, and therefore, ultimately, Noah faced God's judgment. Uh, We're told that he was blameless among the people of his time, but that's not to say he was blameless before God. Chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. See, Noah was a righteous man, but not a sinless man. Uh, Fast forward to immediately after the flood, and Noah and his family emerge as the sole survivors. And yet God is under no illusion as to their spiritual state. Uh, God is all too aware that their hearts, including Noah's, are still biased towards evil. And it's evident in God's post-flood proclamation. Just have a quick peek at uh, chapter 8, verse 21. Uh, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. The point is this. Because all people sin, all people will ultimately fall under God's judgment unless God rescues them. To be rescued by God is to be rescued from His judgment. Which leads to a second observation about salvation. Uh, Salvation is God's initiative. Uh, Who is it that first leaks the news of the pending disaster? Well, it's God. And who is it who comes up with the escape plan as to how Noah can evade God's judgment. It's God. God is in the driving seat from first to last. It is God who chooses to save Noah and his family. And through an act of revelation, God informs Noah of what he, God, is going to do and what he, Noah, needs to do. A third observation which follows is that salvation depends on a right response to God's warning. Uh, Noah was instructed to build an ark. Now, if you fancy DIY projects, uh, imagine that one. He had to decide, of course, nevertheless, was he going to obey? From a human perspective, it must have seen that there was Buckley's chance of such a devastating flood ever happening. Uh, It was unprecedented. Surely life would just continue on as normal. And yet, God had issued a warning to Noah. And the ball was now in Noah's court. God's word had been spoken. How would Noah respond? Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He did everything just as God commanded him. Uh, Many millennia later, uh, the New Testament has this analysis of Noah. And the language used is insightful because it gives us a window onto 
what was going on in Noah's heart and indeed his response. His response is reviewed through the lens of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So you see that the doctrine of the salvation by faith it comes very early in the Bible. It's there in Genesis chapter 6. Salvation by faith involves, we see there, two things. Heeding God's warning of his judgment and embracing his prescribed means of salvation. In this case, the ark. So, uh, just brief recap. In Genesis, we've already seen, therefore, uh, salvation is from God's judgment. Uh, salvation is God's initiative. Salvation requires the response of faith. And the fourth principle concerning the purpose of salvation is the purpose of that salvation. Uh, what is the goal of salvation? And we see this. Salvation is for a new beginning. That's the purpose. That's its goal. Uh, when Noah and his family emerged from the ark, uh, blinking in the bright dawn of a world washed clean, God makes this proclamation. Genesis 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now then, uh, don't these words have an air of familiarity about them? Have we not heard these words somewhere before? Well, of course, they were uttered in the Garden of Eden. And God now utters them again. In effect, God is starting over. This is like a new creation. But the question is, is it a new creation? Uh, this is a new beginning, but it is with a difference. Uh, unlike in Eden, human hearts are no longer pure and unsolid. Unlike in Eden, sin and death are now interwoven through the fabric of the creation. And unlike in Eden, God's blessing is now caveated with provisions for the fall. God now actually issues uh, specific legislation concerning murder, chapter 9, verses 5 to 6. He says this, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. You see, it's a new beginning, but it's not a renewed creation. Uh, the world may have been washed clean by the flood, but the human heart remains soiled by sin. And in the incident we read at the end, where Noah gets totally welled, uh, Noah is the first guy to, it seems, get into the hobby of home brewing, and he gets totally welled, and then is dishonored by his younger son. And we see there that even this righteous family is riven by discord, by disunity, and by disgrace. 
and the testimony of history since, both biblical history and non-biblical history, is that sin and its effects continue to plague our lives and our world. And the question which remains unanswered at this point are this. How will God deal with the endemic problem of sinful hearts? In Genesis chapter 9, we have a new beginning with the same creation. But what is required is a new beginning with a renewed creation. It's important for us to realize that God didn't send the flood because he thought it would work. Uh, He knew it wouldn't provide the final solution to sin. The judgment and the rescue of the flood points us therefore forward. It points us forward to a greater judgment and a greater rescue that is yet to come. And this greater judgment and this greater rescue will involve and require the crushing of the serpent's head, as we saw in Genesis 3. So, in conclusion then, uh, a couple of thoughts on application. Uh, We've said previously, uh, our understanding of God and His greatness and sin and its pervasiveness, these are longer-term projects to dig deeper on. Uh, Our aim each week is to continue deepening our understanding little by little. So, the first thing we can observe is something about our hearts and our world. And basically, it's this. We cannot fix the world. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 pushes us further in grasping the endemic problem of sin. Uh, The world before the flood is no different to the world of our day. Uh, The Bible's analysis of fallen humanity still rings true. Uh, It is not past its expiry date. Uh, Genesis 6 verse, verse 5 again. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And this diagnosis applies even to the best of us. And it brings home with renewed clarity that actually we can't fix the problems of our world ourselves. It's actually misguided to think that we can work towards a new utopia. If a flood which resets the world population to one righteous man and his family can't fix the problem, nothing else in our power can. Even with the greatest advances in science, in medicine, in education and technology, the problem of the sinful human heart remains unresolved. We will never be able to recreate our world ourselves. There is no way back to Eden. However, what we will see as the Bible storyline unfolds is that there is a way forward to a place even better than Eden. And God has promised that one day He will renew all things. 2 Peter 3 verse 13 says this, But in keeping with his promise, that is God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And so you see, the flood serves as a sobering reality check against misplaced optimism. Any reform, whether it be personal, social, political, will never be able to bring about a perfected human 
society. And the second strand of application uh, as we close is provided by the New Testament as it looks back on that great diluvian event. If you recall, salvation requires us to heed God's warning and to take God's word seriously. And tragically, the reality is that many people dismiss God's warning and His word. Rather than responding in faith to His warning, they opt for scorn and disbelief. And it's always, and it's always been thus. And Jesus draws a line between the flood and the future day of God's final judgment. And Jesus' observation is that sadly many people don't heed the lessons of history. Matthew 24, verse 38 says this. Jesus' words, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is, of course, referring to his second coming. He is the Son of Man. And Jesus goes on to speak in that section of his return as being like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. Nobody knows the day or the hour. So the point of what Jesus is saying is clear. He's issuing a challenge. Are you ready for that day? Uh, 2 Peter has a more extended treatment of the matter. Uh, look at 2 Peter 3, verse 3 onwards. It says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, which is now, uh, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. How does salvation come? It comes through heeding God's warning and embracing his prescribed means of rescue. And it calls us to respond in faith. Reverend MacLeod was misguided to suggest that the victims of the tsunami were receiving God's specific judgment for their specific sins. But the Reverend MacLeod was right in his conclusion. He said this, that the Boxing Day tsunami was, and I quote, a divine visitation that ought to make men tremble the world over. The flood in the time of Noah, the tsunami more recently, should awaken us to fear not just the forces of nature, but the God who designed them and directs them. And they should beg the question in our hearts, are we ready to meet him on the judgment day? Proverbs 9 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning 
of wisdom. But the questions that hang in the air at this point in the Bible's unfolding narrative are these. Uh, What is God's prescribed means of rescue for sinful humanity? And how will God deal with the intrinsic problem of the sinful human heart? And for the answers to these questions, the Bible invites us to read on. And that is what we will do in future weeks. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Uh, this account of the flood and your judgments, but also your rescue, uh, are sobering when we see the reality of our judgment on sin and indeed uh, the painful and awful and horrific nature of the effects of your judgment on us. But we also see uh, your heart, how you are grieved by the sin in the world and the necessity for judgment and that you are moved through the grace in your heart to provide us with a means of rescue as we continue to plot and to explore the Bible's unfolding narrative storyline, the storyline of salvation, help us to see with clearer eyes uh, negatively the, the reality of sin and its effects, and positively the wonder of your grace and your love for us, supremely expressed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to respond rightly to what we learn, we pray. Amen.